Each year in the United States, actually, heat-related illnesses kill hundreds of people. And in other parts of the world that experience high temperatures that are even more frequent, like in India uh, and other cities in the Middle East, upwards of 2,000 people die from heat-related deaths annually. Now, you're probably familiar with the terms heat exhaustion and heat stroke, but the question is, do you know the difference? And would you know what to do if something like this happened to you or somebody else? Would you recognize the symptoms and would you know what to do to help? Now, before we get into this, I do wanna, of course, say I'm not a doctor. I am working off of information provided by the government, like the CDC and the WHO, you know, these types of vetted resources in terms of their recommendations and their descriptions of these illnesses. However, if you like medical stuff and you do wanna hear about medical stuff from actual doctors and people who are like qualified to say these types of things and not just be cute and make infographics like me, go listen to Medicine Remix. Also, my favorite podcast on Anchor. Also, any excuse to talk about them and fangirl over them. Anyway, the terms heat exhaustion and heat stroke can be confused or used interchangeably, which is technically incorrect. I mean, you could make the argument that they are the same in that the two terms refer to two heat-related conditions that are kind of on a spec. So somebody could get heat exhaustion and be treated before it develops into heat stroke, which can be fatal. So heat exhaustion is essentially like the precursor to heat stroke, and it is kind of like this very uncomfortable condition to be in, but it doesn't necessarily have to become severe, full-blown, potentially fatal with irreversible physical consequences, heat stroke. Recognizing heat exhaustion then is really important because if you recognize it before it becomes heat stroke then you can treat somebody who's suffering from the sort of heat exhaustion part of it and you can do that very quickly so the sooner the better on that front now while it is true that there are obvious bruising for bruising ways to develop heat exhaustion like playing or working outside in hot temperatures especially if it's humid without getting adequate fluid and also not taking rests in the shade but you can also develop what they call non-exertional heat exhaustion so if you're very, very young or you're very, very old or you're otherwise not in the best health, you're more at risk for this. And you can actually even get it in your sleep, which is obviously going to make it much more difficult to recognize and therefore potentially much more dangerous. So just a little bit of context here. Generally, our bodies do a pretty good slash reliable job of regulating our core body temperature. It's something that if it goes awry or becomes overwhelmed, it's usually because of one of two things. Either there's some kind of dysfunction in our body that means it's struggling to regulate our temperature, like some kind of disease that affects our autonomic nervous system that help to control these mechanisms that are things that we're not necessarily consciously doing, or that our bodies are like working okay, but we're just in circumstances that are very extreme. So things like a child who has been left in a car or soldiers who are wearing like eight layers of fatigues and carrying gear and running through the desert. So in that case, it's more of an exertional and an external situation, which is just therefore made more intense by the high heat. But the other thing that's actually really important to know is that humidity can actually make this really like way worse and be more serious because it also then puts the heat on our body and the stress on our body, but humidity interferes with the cooling mechanism that our body has, the ability to like self-cool, which is to sweat. 
So when we sweat, the sweat evaporates off our skin and we cool down, it releases heat. Now humidity messes with that process, which is one reason why when you are in humid conditions, you just feel like miserably yucky because your sweating is not really doing its job as well as it would if you were in like a drier heat, because of course that's gonna help it evaporate. But damn if a body won't try, because in terms of recognizing heat exhaustion, somebody could really be sweating like profusely. Like that's not to be ignored. Like if somebody, if you or somebody around you is like sweating really extreme amounts, like that's a sign that their body is really trying to cool itself down and they probably need to be moved to a cooler area to help facilitate that because they are getting overheated. And the person may also in this situation be very, very tired, feel kind of sick to their stomach and dizzy. They may even kind of be like starting to black out. And also you'll notice that if you go to take their pulse, their pulse will be kind of weak. You'll still be able to feel it, but it will just be like what they might call like thready. They might also say that they have a headache, their skin will feel kind of clammy, and they could have some like muscle cramps in their like arms and legs. Now at this point, what you want to do is basically help that person cool down. You want to put them in the shade or take them inside, put them in a cold shower, let them sip some water, anything you can do to basically help lower their core body temperature. And the thing is here is that if you do that and then like you're kind of watching and waiting to see if they start to feel better and like an hour goes by and they're actually getting worse or they're not getting better, you're going to want to seek actual medical attention because at this point they are likely developing heat stroke. So the thing is that you have to remember here is that our bodies are always trying to maintain homeostasis and that basically is like if we get too cold or too hot, so hypo or hyperthermia, it can damage our organ. So when heat stroke has set in, or it is starting to set in, it's because the person's body temperature has started to reach a point at which organ damage can occur. Now this is approximately 105 degrees Fahrenheit, but you'll definitely start feeling and noticing it at around like 103 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is an indication if you're able to actually measure it outside of even just the symptoms that you would be able to to see somebody or that you would be feeling yourself, you have to seek medical care because they need interventions that are much more aggressive than what you could probably do at home. And also they need to be monitored because at this point they've probably already started to experience some damage to major organ systems, which can include their brain. So heat stroke symptoms usually clue you into the damage being done internally. And this can definitely affect somebody's mental status. So a person might become confused. They may actually completely lose consciousness, they might pass out. And when you go to take their pulse, you're actually going to feel it very, very strongly, but it will also be very, very fast, which is not a good sign. They're probably going to feel sick, and if they are conscious, they might be throwing up. They're going to also have very, very red, hot skin. And here's the big old red flag here. So if somebody has heat exhaustion, their skin's going to be kind of like damp and clammy. But if they have heat stroke, they're actually going to feel dry to the touch because they're no longer sweating. Their body has just not been able to cool itself through that mechanism anymore. So the big red flag here is that they're like not sweating. They're clearly overheated and they're ill, but they are no longer trying to cool their body temperature that way. Other things to look out for, depending on who you're looking at here, is like small children especially can also be prone 
to seizures. And kids can actually have seizures for a number of reasons, but they're smaller, basically, you know, smaller body size and just like a lower threshold for symptoms from organ damage because they are so much smaller. You may notice more like extreme displays like that. And children are also especially at risk, not just because they're little, but also because they are more likely to get into extreme situations, like playing in a car that then they get locked inside of without ventilation. That actually accounts for about 30% of kid car deaths. And you hear about these a lot this time of year, or it feels like you hear about it a lot. But honestly, I mean, even if it doesn't happen that frequently, like maybe a few hundred cases a year, anytime you hear about it, it's usually memorable, especially if it's in your community. About half the time attributed to what they call forgotten baby syndrome, which is basically when adults or parents who are caring for kids, like strap them in the car to go, maybe to go drop them off at daycare, but instead they just kind of get stuck in their mental pattern of like, you know how you drive somewhere and you don't remember getting there because you've just been on autopilot? Well, a lot of times when kids get left in a car, it's because the parent or caregiver has actually just gone on autopilot and maybe drove to work without remembering to stop and driving them off at daycare. And so what they always say is, you know, you should leave your purse or something you know you'll have to take with you in the back seat with the kids so that you have to get it and that you will be reminded that the kid is there. And I mean, it seems, I think, unfathomable to a lot of people that that could happen, that you could just forget your kids in the car. But our brains are very strange. Um, and certainly this is something that has been pretty well documented. Now, the other thing is here is that actually in terms of like car-related kid deaths, just the statistics on this are very unnerving because there's a whole other like quarter or so, maybe a little less than that, of people who honestly knew the kid was in the car. Like they left the kid in the car to go into a store or to go do something and they just honest to God did not know how dangerous it was. And the thing is, is that kids, especially really young kids and especially infants, can't get themselves out of a car that's not ventilated properly and that's getting too hot, which is one reason that they are more likely to die. Or in another case, somebody who is disabled or somebody who is just basically not able to either get themselves out or make enough of a of a noise that, you know, it would alert somebody to their presence. You know, on that same kind of note, don't don't, don't get me started about dogs and cars, people leaving dogs and cars. We know that dogs die from this a lot and I, <laughs> it makes me so mad. Part of the reason why they succumb so quickly is that they already cannot regulate their core body temperature as well as we can, hence all of the panting that dogs do. But in fact, um, they are not the only mammals that can struggle with this. Any mammal uh, that is in a poorly ventilated area and does not have water in high temperatures, things, you know, livestock, horses, can also get heat stroke or sunstroke as it is sometimes called especially if they're like you know out in a pasture where they can't get in the shade and so it's actually really important like whatever mammal you know and love to make sure that you are helping them to be in areas where they can stay cool and also stay hydrated now whatever mammal you are dealing with the primary goal in treating heat stroke is to rapidly cool the internal body temperature to stabilize, but also hopefully minimize damage to their internal organs, which even if a person doesn't die can be permanent and have long-term consequences, including like brain damage. Usually this is done by totally submerging somebody into like an ice bath. And this is like kind of the go-to method no matter where you are, though it can be really dicey because if somebody's passed out or they're unconscious or they are at risk for doing so, you've got to make sure that their head stays above water. So you 
you can't just like throw somebody in an ice bath and leave them, which is one reason why you really need to seek medical care so that trained people like in emergency rooms have setups to do this very quickly and safely can um, help them. And they also at this point, you actually aren't necessarily going to be giving them anything to drink by mouth, primarily because at this point they may not be able to take anything by mouth. If they're unconscious or they're vomiting, they're going to need IV hydration. They're also going to need probably a pretty good dose of something that's like an electrolyte solution because the other thing is is that at this point it's also a high risk of being overhydrated and when you get overhydrated you think you know oh if somebody's that dehydrated they need a lot of fluid well at this point somebody might be so dehydrated that like they're not there's no urine output they're retaining all of that fluid and so they need to have something that can be given to them under medical supervision IV type Pedialyte you know that you know how Pedialyte like balances your electrolytes or like Gatorade you might need things like that because if you have electrolyte imbalances either because you are over or under hydrated and it affects the amount of say sodium or other electrolytes in your blood that can cause its own problems it can certainly worsen what's you know going on but it also can have implications like cardiac implications can affect how your heart works or it can give your heart a funny rhythm like what they call an arrhythmia which can actually be fatal so if people have like sudden cardiac death uh, if they've been like running a a marathon in a really hot temperature or something like that if they've got an electrolyte imbalance that um, throws off their heart they can have an arrhythmia that causes their heart to beat in an erratic way or to not beat the right way and they can die so uh, using the CDC data and some recommendations I threw together a little infographic on Twitter today that kind of makes this visually a little bit better to understand. But the big takeaway here is that if you are outside in the heat, if you're working outside, if you have a job where you've got to be outside, as the temperatures climb up into those kind of creepy places where it's like above 90, and also if you are in an area that's very humid, it's really important to know what to look for, not just in yourself, but also in the people around you. Because sometimes, especially if somebody's kind of progressing towards heat stroke pretty rapidly, if they are becoming confused or disoriented, they might not be able to tell you that they don't feel well. But if you can recognize what's happening, you know, you're probably going to be able to get them help to call 911, to take them to an ER, to make sure that they can get treatment and hopefully survive. (laughs) 